One commentator has described the book of Ephesians as the Grand Canyon of the Bible. And not that it's this massive open space, but because of the sheer magnificence and wonder of this overwhelming view of the glory of God. Another way someone put it is that it's the aim and goal of everything that Scripture was heading towards. And another Christian leader I spoke to when I was preparing this said that when he first got to grips with this letter, he described it as impenetrable because it was so overwhelming. Uh, The the ideas being expressed were just too good and wondrous to be true to the extent that they seemed almost unrelatable, unbelievable. Um, In one sense, that's exactly how I found these last few chapters. I've not found them easy to digest, let alone comprehend fully. In one sense... When reading this opening, well, these opening chapters that we've been doing for the last few weeks, you could look at them as one great long opening prayer to the Ephesians. You're seeing a man overwhelmed with joy, exploding with the reality of seeing the beauty of God's almighty purpose in all its glory. And he's, he's trying to pin it all down in a letter within a few short sentences. We know from verse 13 of chapter 3 that Paul does not underplay his situation. He makes it very clear that he's suffering, knowing that very soon that his head will probably be rolling on that cold stone prison cell floor. Yet Paul doesn't want them to be discouraged. He knows that their situation isn't great. So instead of praying for their external circumstances to improve, in verse 14, as we'll see shortly, Paul is far more concerned with their internal life. Why? Well, because he knows that despite all the external circumstances, all the horror that is seen and experienced in this world and around them, that ultimately God is in charge. God's eternal plan has been revealed to him. He desires, his aim for his readers, for me and you, is that we may know what he knows, that we may be fully strengthened in our inner life by the Spirit, to grasp what he grasps, God's fullness in Christ. And it's this fullness which ultimately is what it's all about. It's been something that we've been trying to grasp in the last few weeks. In fact, it's the theme of the entire letter to the Ephesians. It is his aim and desire ultimately for every church he's written to and for us. So have a look again at the passage. Paul starts chapter 3 with the words, For this reason. Referring to what he's just been writing about in chapter 2, that Jews and Gentiles are reconciled, brought together, united as one new humanity through Christ Jesus. For this reason, he refers to himself as a prisoner of Christ Jesus for the sake of the Gentiles. And then he's about to launch and conclude in this very well-known prayer in verse 14. But still invigorated with the excitement of what he's experiencing, the joy and wonder of what's been grasped, he suddenly goes off and takes a sharp left. He diverts expanding on his own personal testimony of the privilege that's been specifically given to him in verse 2. He says, surely you have heard, surely you have heard. And he goes off, and it's in this divergence that I want to pick out one big picture and its implications for us that Paul mentions in verse 2 to 13. And it's this, that the church is central and proof that God is in charge My dad is a retired medical physicist, and I can't even comprehend the maths and the concepts that go into physics and advancing technology, but I do love to hear about them. And uh, he'd always tell me stories growing up, growing up on science fiction. And I remember one of the stories he told me was that uh, 
and I'm sure you're all familiar with it, is about Archimedes, the ancient Greek scholar who stepped into a bath and noticed that when the water level rose, he suddenly understood that the volume of water displaced must be equal to the volume of the part of his body he had submerged. Now, ignore the science, but with this discovery, he jumps out of the bath with such excitement and runs through the street naked, shouting, Eureka, which is where we get the word from. You might know what I'm about to ask you. Have you ever experienced something similar? And not a naked sprint in the street, but where, for the very first time, something has clicked. It has come together, an idea, something you've been trying to figure out for ages has just slotted into place. It's there, right in front of you, as clear as day. A mystery revealed. Maybe it was the very first time that you really fully understood the gospel. And Paul here, in verse 4 to 9, is, is personally reflecting on what's been revealed to him. He's still relishing in the privilege, saying, after all these centuries, all this time, this is what it's all about. God, this is your plan. And out of all the people, Abraham, Moses, King David, the prophets, all of them racking their heads over what this was all about, you reveal it to us, the apostles. And out of all the people, you task me, a persecutor of your own people, with the mission to take it to the Gentiles, the rest of the world. Well, Paul then in verse 10, expands on what the intent and implication of the mystery is and where we see the proof that God is in charge. Verse 10, his intent was that now, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms according to his eternal purposes that he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. God is showing that he is in control through the glory of the church, revealing to our culture of division a unity, both to earthly authorities and spiritual realms. This is God's wisdom, a place where the homeless and the CEO sit, eat and drink together at the Lord's table, where there is no division or divide between class, race, culture or industry. The word manifold wisdom, manifold meaning many, multicolored, The many-colored fellowship of the church. It's a reflection of the many-colored wisdom of God. Well, it's interesting that the book of Ephesians refers a few times to the heavenly and spiritual realms. Well, what Paul wants to make clear is that this manifold wisdom is something that is being revealed to the spiritual realms. 1 Peter 1 verse 12 tells us that this is something into which even angels long to look. That the whole plan of salvation, the gospel, is something that they're marveling at from where they are. The mystery that was even unknown to them, they watch in awe and wonder as the church, through history, reveals itself in its many-colored variations. The gospel spreading across the world. It's this unifying of this new humanity throughout history to the spiritual realm and the eyes of the world that is the wisdom When you see a bright full moon at night, you you know it's a reflection of something far more glorious, the sun. Our witness together as a church, how we behave to the watching world should reflect the wisdom of God, a light on a hill, a glimpse of his glory. That's the unique proof to everyone that God is in charge over all. It's, It's a little bit like a reverse tower of Babel, but under God, not against him. Well, this teaches us that the church from an eternal perspective, has been central throughout history and central to his plan of what will come in the future, a taste of the new creation. Okay, so 
Coming out of this digression, back to Paul's original intent, we come to this prayer, this very well-known prayer in Ephesians verse 14, for this reason again. The reason being that for us to be this church, we can't do it on our own. That for the vision to be a reality for us to really grasp, experience, and work out of God's fullness, we need his strength. That's what Paul's praying for. This prayer gets us looking in three directions. We're guided to look up, around, and out. He prays four things for the Ephesians, which can effectively be seen as four steps, one building on the other. He prays for strength by the Spirit, to be rooted in love, to grasp the knowledge of that love within the church, and finally to be filled. So strength by the Spirit, rooted in love, knowledge, and then to be filled. First of all, we are taken up, up to appeal to our Heavenly Father where every rich blessing comes from, for him to strengthen us in our inner being, the very depths of us by his Holy Spirit. Now, the word dwell in verse 17 does not mean a temporary lodger. It's, it's to inhabit permanently, to be a master, which in turn means to control, to reign, to steer. Now, of course, all believers have the Spirit living in them fully already. Colossians 2 verse 10 says, And in Christ you have been brought to fullness. But what Paul is praying is that they may know and understand his rule more in their heart, that they may be fortified, invigorated, to be continually reinforced in strength by a growing faith in their hearts. It's about the degree in which the power is operating. In one sense, I'm entering in the area of experience here, so bear with me. If you were given a map of London, okay, and uh, you were shown that you need to get from here to there, and you worked out the route, you know exactly where you're going from the map. But then you start walking it, you may have an idea of where you're going, but then all of a sudden all the senses will start kicking off. Your sight, your smell, the sound, the physical touch. Whilst you're following the map and walking, you experience the atmosphere of the street. That's what living the Christian life is like. It's one thing to know objectively God's truth, biblical doctrine, and to have great Bible knowledge. But to subjectively experience it is quite another thing. For that truth to actually function in our hearts with how we live our life and the decisions that we make. In the Bible, the heart is essentially the inner you. Your emotions, affections, your mind, your most deepest motivations. Your Christian faith may be something that only activates emotion and affections, but you may not be thinking cognitively how the gospel can have influence in the areas of where you're placed in work. And I'm not necessarily talking about evangelism. Your Christian faith may be something only intellectual, but it has no effect to really move your affections. But I'm sure there are things in your life, and myself included, that actually captivate everything about us, our hearts, and it's not the gospel. Whether that's a form of success, approval, a, a specific relationship, they would be idols. And we do need to make active effort to remove them, to identify them. If we don't, our inner life is weak. And if our inner life is weak, no matter how amazing the external circumstances, we move out in the world in weakness. If our inner life is strong because of our fellowship with Jesus indwelling in us, no matter how bad our circumstances, we go out in, out in the world in strength. And Paul's an example for us. Well, Paul continues, he then prays that they would be rooted and established in love. That their whole life springs out from the foundations of love 
which can only be established in the first place by the reigning and strengthening of the Holy Spirit in the heart. Well, this then takes us looking around. That the foundation of that love is for the other members of the church body. So that together we can grasp and know all the many spheres of Christ's love, which surpasses knowledge. This is something we can do corporately, but it's also something we can do individually. Taking time to meditate and linger on what happened on the cross to be able to see the reality of a sinful nature revealed to us so that we can repent and taste the grace that is endlessly poured upon us. This is partly what I understand what it means to grasp the width, the length, the height, and the depth of his love. That whoever you are, whatever you've done, it cannot exhaust his love for you, and it cannot go beyond his forgiveness. I can go into a lot more detail about the length, the width, the height, and the depth, but we don't have time I want to end here that Paul finally prays that they may be filled, verse 19, to the fullness of God. And for us to get that full knowledge that surpasses all, we need each other. It's all part of the wisdom, the plan. That together, as one multi-fellowship church, we reach and experience that fullness. The main thing here is that we don't get there by ourselves. It's by his spirit and together with all his people. So we've looked up to the Father, we've looked around to each other in his body. And finally, verse 20, to him who can do immeasurably more, verse 20 gives us the opportunity to look out, to have a vision, to imagine and see how we can be that light, that witness, that unique new society, to be God's dwelling place and to be his instruments in the world both when we're gathered together and when we're scattered out in the various situations he's placed us in. And maybe that takes the form of a Christian union or network within your workplace or the relationships that you build here. Can they be developed? Who knows what they could lead to? I mean, how in ways you may not understand, you may be able to speak into, advise and support those who are in completely different industries than you. But that's only by his power that is at work within us, verse 20. That's why corporate prayer meeting is essential and an important time for as many members of the body to be there. And we actually have one here for the lunchtime service on the 14th of April, so if you're available, please do come. But for all this to happen, it must be by God's indwelling power within us. That's why Paul prays for it, and it's where we must start if it's ever going to happen. Well, I'm going to end there and pray for us. Heavenly Father, thank you that we can have confidence to come to you because of what your Son has done for us on the cross. We do pray for your Spirit to work in us, to strengthen us, that we may be rooted in love um, for one another. And that we do pray that we may glorify you in the areas that you have placed us in. In Jesus' name, amen.